Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the evening of September 28, 1973, 18-year-old Peter Riley sat behind the wheel of his beloved 1968 Corvette as he drove a friend home from a church meeting in North Canaan, Connecticut. Peter floored the gas and cruised through the brisk New England night. His friend lived almost five miles out of the way, but Peter didn't mind. He was happy for the excuse to drive around a little longer before he headed in for the night. At around 9.20 p.m., Peter's friend climbed out of the passenger seat and Peter set off on a 25-minute trip to his neighborhood of Falls Village. And if Peter knew what awaited him at home, he might have taken an extra moment to enjoy the peace and quiet of that late-night drive, because in a matter of minutes, his life would change forever. Peter Riley had no idea that he would soon walk inside his front door to find his mother brutally attacked and bleeding to death on the floor, or that just hours later, he would be the main suspect in her murder. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Barbara Gibbons. This week, we'll introduce you to Barbara and her son, Peter, and the events that led up to her murder. Next week, we'll cover the public outrage that erupted after Peter's arrest. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. In 1973, the small town of Canaan, Connecticut, was nothing short of idyllic. With a population of just over 3,000 people, it was the sort of place where there were no strangers. The priest of the local parish and the chief of police would get coffee together every Saturday. The high school's quarterback would give the owner of the town's local gas station a friendly wave hello every day on his walk home from school. But there was one Canaan local who never seemed to fit in. 51-year-old Barbara Gibbons. Barbara was a slight woman at 5'2 and only 115 pounds, but what she lacked in stature, she made up for in personality. She was brash, loud, opinionated, and she only got more intense when she was drinking, which was often. Barbara would sometimes pour herself a glass of brandy in the morning and wouldn't put down her bottle until she went to sleep for the night. When she finally lay down, she wasn't always alone. 
Barbara kept a rotating cast of lovers. Her drinking and dating life gained her a reputation around Canaan. But there was one more interesting habit that made her the talk of the town. Whenever a storm rolled through the town, as it often did during the summer months, most families would be gathered inside watching television and keeping dry. But not Barbara Gibbons. Most rainy nights, she could be found out on her front porch reading a book wrapped in cellophane to keep it dry in the middle of the downpour. It seemed like everything Barbara Gibbons did landed her at the center of town gossip. I drove by the Gibbons' cottage last night. That dumpy thing, what an eyesore. Tell me about it. And guess what? There was another car parked right out front. Some shoddy Oldsmobile. Wasn't it a Buick last time? Leave it to Barb. She goes through men like sleeves of saltines. But there was one thing about Barbara that earned her some respect around Canaan. Her 18-year-old son, Peter Riley. Peter was polite, easygoing, and eager to please those around him. Everyone in town had something nice to say about him, from his friends at school to the local police. It was easy to forget that Peter and Barbara were even related, especially since they didn't even share the same last name. No one was quite sure where Riley came from, not even Barbara. Wait, so you're telling me there was no Mr. Riley? I just assumed he was an ex or something. Let me get you another one. Thanks. And nope, well... Maybe, but if there was, I sure don't remember him. So, Peter's last name? Might as well have pulled it out from a hat. I figured the least I could do for the kid is give him his own name. Lord knows the last thing this world needs is another Gibbons running around. (laughs) He's a good kid. I'll drink to that. There were whispers that Barbara wasn't even the boy's real mother. And to those who knew Peter, the rumor made sense. The pair had just about nothing in common. But even though they were an unlikely duo, Barbara and Peter were extremely close. They could often be seen out at local restaurants or taking long walks together, howling with laughter and joking around. Barbara shared everything with her son, and Peter accepted Barbara for all her quirks. He was proud of how his mother refused to conform to the rest of society. While the rest of Canaan turned their noses up at Barbara Gibbons, Peter thought his mother was liberated, and he aspired to one day be more like her. But the locals who adored Peter were scared of exactly that. Thanks for seeing me, Brisbane Anderson. Of course. What seems to be the problem? Well, it's Peter Riley. Peter? What has he done? He's always been such a good kid. Well, that's just it. He is. But lately, something seems off. He's been falling asleep in class. Looks like he's lost a ton of weight. I don't know. I feel a bit worried. (sighs) It's that mother of his, Barbara. I met her at the parent-teacher conference last month. She reeked of brandy. On a Tuesday at 6 in the evening. That woman. But despite all the worry, there was nothing wrong with Peter. He was just a growing boy. Unfortunately, the same could not be said for his mother. In 1970, when Peter Riley was only 15, Barbara received some terrible news. So, after reviewing our initial scans, let me see here. Come on, Doc, just spit it out. 
What's wrong with me? Well, we did find something, Miss Gibbons. It looks like ovarian cancer. <sighs> perfect. Just perfect. So what? Let me guess. Two months left? No, that's too optimistic. What, days? Whoa, now, hang on. Let's not get carried away. We were lucky enough to catch it early, and it's actually very treatable. We'll get you scheduled for surgery, and then You're you putting me under the knife? No way. Not a chance. I know how these things go. I wake up, you accidentally sew a scalpel and a whole roll of gauze in with my lower intestine. I have to take out a second mortgage on my house just to pay for the botched surgery, and I can't go take a piss without a nurse's help for the next 15 years. Not a chance. Miss Gibbons, I can assure you none of that will happen. You have my word. <laughs> yeah, right, your word. I wouldn't stake my life on your word. Toodaloo, Doc. Barbara was a naturally anxious person, so quickly jumped to the conclusion that this was it for her. She told anyone who would listen that she was dying and had mere months left. Make it a triple. Early start today, Barb. Something tells me this isn't a celebratory drink. Might be one of the last brandies I ever have. The doctor's got my scans back. It's cancer. And my lady bits. Wow. I'm, I'm so sorry, Barb. My mom passed from the same thing a few years back. How bad is it? Stage three? Well, no, they got it pretty early. Said it's operable or whatever. Didn't spread or nothing, but I can just tell. This is it for me. Barbara, come on. Most of the time they can just snip it out and that's that. You nearly gave me a heart attack. Yeah, yeah, whatever. We'll see about that. Now where's that drink? She underwent surgery that same year to have the cancer removed. It was successful, but only three years later, Barbara began complaining of pains in her abdomen once again. On the night of September 28, 1973, everything changed. Barbara was up to her usual nightly routine, drinking brandy and reading in solitude, holed up in her cottage, when a wave of anxiety rushed over her. She had gotten the scan over a week ago and still hadn't heard back from her surgeon, Dr. Frank Lavallo. She threw her book down onto the floor and began pacing. Around 9.20 p.m., she headed to the phone and called Dr. Lavallo's home number. To her dismay, the family's babysitter picked up. Most people would have likely left a message and waited for a call back the next morning. But not Barbara Gibbons. A dinner party? Are you kidding me? I'm at home worried that I might be on death's door and this jerk is at a dinner party? Give me the number. The number of what, ma'am? The house he's at. Whichever one of his hoity-toity friends is having the dinner party, I want his number. I'll drive down there if I have to. Uh, I'm not sure I feel comfortable. Listen up, sweetheart. Give me the number and we won't have any problems. Otherwise, I'll make sure the good doctor knows that his babysitter is stealing from his wife's jewelry box. I've never stolen anything from the Lavallos. Well, then I guess it'll be my word against yours. Trusted patient of 10 years versus some high school brat. <gasps> After some more prodding, Barbara was finally able to get the number of the home in Salisbury, Connecticut, where Dr. Lavallo was having dinner. Hello? Who is this? It's the Pope. Excuse me? Oh, come on, Doc, it's Barbara. What, do you expect me to just twiddle my thumbs waiting to find out if I'm dying while you sit up in your ivory tower, eating beef wellington with your pals? 
Miss Gibbons, is this about the results of your scan? The results that we discussed would not be ready until this coming Monday? Multiple times? Oh, come on. You can't give me a hint? I'll talk to you on Monday. Please do not call this number again. Unfortunately, Barbara Gibbons would never find out the results of the scan because she would not survive the rest of the night. Coming up, a terrible tragedy tears the Gibbons family apart. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath, from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. And now back to the story. On the night of September 28, 1973, 18-year-old Peter Riley left a meeting in the basement of Canaan United Methodist Church in North Canaan, Connecticut. He had spent the evening with around 20 other teenagers, excitedly discussing plans for their new Canaan Youth Center. As he was on his way out, 16-year-old John Sahaki asked Peter for a ride home. Sahaki's house was almost five miles out of the way, but he agreed without hesitation. That's just the kind of friend that he was. Plus, he liked to drive. That night, the two boys sped off into the dark New England night. By 9.45 p.m., John was safely at home, and Peter was zipping back down Route 7 through the steep hills and winding turns that took him back to the small cottage he shared with his mother. A few minutes past 10, Peter pulled into the driveway, but as soon as he opened the door, he knew something was wrong. First, the family cat who usually greeted him was nowhere to be seen, and then he noticed a book on the living room table laying wide open. Anywhere else, this would likely have gone unnoticed, but not in the home of Barbara Gibbons. Books were sacred objects in her house, and she would never break a book's spine like that. He called out to let his mother know that he was home, but there was no response. Peter peered into the bedroom and noticed that the light was on. He scanned the small room, and from the corner of his eye, he saw his mother's body. She was sprawled out at the foot of the bunk bed that the two shared. Barbara was completely naked except for a blue, unbuttoned shirt and white t-shirt, which had been pulled up over her chin. Her throat had been cut so deeply that her head was nearly severed from her neck. There was blood pooling around her limp body and splattered on the furniture nearby. 
Peter was horrified. It took him a moment to realize that his mother was still somehow taking shallow breaths. She was alive. He immediately rushed into the kitchen to call for help. As he fumbled with the phone in his shaking hands, Peter's first thought was that his mother had done this to herself. After long days of drinking, she would often express her desire to kill herself. But Peter tried not to think about it. He pulled himself together and dialed the first number that came to mind, his friend Jeff Maddow's number. It was a smart first call. The Maddow family were all volunteer workers for the VFW Ambulance Squad. They immediately leaped into action when Peter told Jeff's parents what happened to Barbara. That was Peter. Something's terribly wrong. Was there an accident? Is Peter okay? It's his mother. He said there's blood everywhere. We need to go get the ambulance now. I told him to call his family doctor and that we'd be there as soon as possible. What kind of mess did Barbara get herself into now? Jeff, you stay here. We'll be home as soon as we can. No way! Peter's my best friend. I'm coming. Listen to your mother. Well, I'm sure he could use a friend right now. Go ask Miss Kaplan if you can borrow her car. Head over and make sure Peter's okay, but don't touch anything. We'll get the ambulance and be there as soon as we can. Got it, Mom. Jeff sped nearly 80 miles an hour to get to Peter's house. When he screeched to a halt, Jeff leaped out of the car to ask his friend what happened. Peter just led him into the house and over to Barbara's body. The two teenagers stared down at the woman in shock. Peter noticed that she seemed to have stopped breathing. By the time they walked back outside, another car was speeding towards them down the usually desolate back road. Inside was State Trooper Bruce McCafferty. The trooper pushed past Peter and headed straight into the house. He watched as McCafferty checked his mother's pulse. Seconds later, the house lit up with ambulance lights and Jeff's parents rushed into the house. Make way for the stretcher. Move, move, move! Do not touch that body. This is an active crime scene. With all due respect, this woman is our friend. Out of the way. Wait, honey. Give me the paddles. The paddles! We're too late. What? No, come on. There's still time. Where are the paddles? She's dead. There's nothing we can do for her now. But we can still help Peter. The poor boy must still be in shock. So let's go check on him, okay? Mrs. Maddow wrapped Peter in a hug. She told him that everything would be all right, but she had no idea how wrong she was. Only a few minutes later, the house was teeming with police, and when Lieutenant James Shea arrived, he quickly took control of the situation. He immediately set his sights on Peter. The man pulled Peter aside and asked him to remove his shirt. Troopers swabbed his fingernails and inspected them with a magnifying glass. That's when Peter had a horrifying realization. The police thought that he might have had something to do with his mother's murder. Officers led him to a nearby cop car and told him to wait. Fifteen minutes later, McCafferty joined Peter in the car and took a statement. It took him almost a half an hour to walk the officer through every detail of his day up until the moment he discovered his mother's body. By then, Peter was exhausted. All he wanted to do was go to sleep and forget this horrible day had ever happened. But it was just beginning. An officer told Peter that they needed to check his body for evidence. 
The 18-year-old was led into his neighbor's home and told to strip completely naked. Peter reluctantly complied. He trembled as the police combed through his hair and scrutinized his entire body with magnifying glasses and tweezers. As he put his clothes back on, he could tell the officer's suspicion was only growing. Not a single bloodstain, spotless. But still, it's just not feeling right. Something's up. You think he did it? I mean, he looks like a pretty harmless kid to me. Hmm, he's too calm. No kid would be this collected after finding his mother like that. And now that you mention it, I've hardly heard a peep out of him. No tears either. That's what I'm saying. It's like he was bracing himself for this. It just doesn't add up. After the strip search, Peter was escorted back into the police cruiser. He sat there for the next two and a half hours, watching as medical professionals and police officers marched in and out of his house. Finally, at two in the morning, an officer slid into the driver's seat and took him to the state police barracks for questioning. Peter remained in the bleak two-story brick building for the next 24 hours. Little did he know that he would be leaving in handcuffs. Coming up, Peter Riley takes a lie detector test, and his life is changed forever. And now, back to our story. At around 2 in the morning on September 29, 1973, 18-year-old Peter Riley sat anxiously in the back of a police cruiser. He was on his way to the Connecticut State Police Barracks for questioning after his mother, Barbara Gibbons, had been murdered in her home just hours before. After coming home from a youth group meeting, Peter found her lying face up on the floor of her bedroom, surrounded by a pool of blood. Peter had no idea what could have happened. But as it turned out, the police were already formulating a theory. And Peter was their prime suspect. In fact, just about everything Peter had said to the police from the time they arrived at the crime scene to the moment he walked into the station only seemed to confirm their suspicions. How was he on the ride over? He told me he thought this was an interesting case. Seriously? His mother gets murdered and he thinks it's an interesting case? You picking up on the same thing as me? I don't know. He was pretty quiet the rest of the ride over. Look past the fact that he's got a clean record. Sure, he's just a kid, but I've seen this sort of thing before. The guilty ones always try to buddy up. They always cooperate. It's the innocent ones who show resistance. Hmm. I heard the kid was even asking officers on the scene about how to become a cop. They said that it was a dream of his or something. Sounds pretty fishy. You got that right. The police seemed to have their minds made up even before Peter arrived at the station. And once he made it there, things only got worse. Peter sat in the police station for four long hours. Finally, at six in the morning, a police officer led Peter into an interview room on the second floor of the police barracks. As soon as the questioning began, Peter was stunned by the interviewer's hostility and intensity. He bluntly asked if he was actually being considered as a suspect in the murder of his own mother. The police officer's response was chilling. Yes, you are. 
You were at the scene of the crime, you have no alibi, and there are no other suspects. The more willing you are to cooperate, the better this will all go for you. Maybe there's an explanation for everything, but until we get it, we're going to need you to answer all of our questions to the best of your ability, alright? Great. Let's begin. I think we have a little problem here, Pete. These charts say you hurt your mother last night. As long as you don't get it straightened out in your mind, you'll never have a day of peace. So let's go over this thing again. Maybe we can bring it out of your subconscious. The officer's line of questioning quickly started to get personal. They reportedly asked Peter to tell them every detail of his mother's sex life before asking if Peter and Barbara had ever been physically intimate themselves. As upsetting as it all was, Peter never hesitated to cooperate. He wanted to do everything he could to help the investigation. The interrogation lasted over two hours, but by 8.30 in the morning, it was over. Lieutenant Shea offered Peter a cot in the police station to get some rest. The boy had already been awake for the past 25 hours. While Peter settled in for a fitful rest, his friend Jeff Maddow woke up in his parents' house across town. Jeff quietly checked the family's guest bedroom, expecting to see Peter asleep inside. The police officers at the crime scene had promised to drive the boy over right after the questioning, but the bed was empty. Jeff's parents were just as confused as he was. The Maddows were like a second family to Peter, so they immediately took it upon themselves to get to the bottom of things. Hello, yes, I'm calling about Peter Riley. Are you a relative? No, but a close family friend. My son had arranged with another officer to have him brought to our house last night. He's been through a terrible tragedy. Right. I'm sorry, but that's not going to be doable at this time. Not doable? What do you mean? Uh, Mr. Riley is currently in holding. Wait, you arrested him? No, sir, but he is needed for additional questioning. Questioning? What could you possibly be questioning him about? His mother has been murdered! I'll come down to the station. Sir, we can call you as soon as he is ready to leave the station, but that won't be for quite some time. Now wait just a minute. I don't know what you think he did, but I can assure you I'm that- I'm sorry, sir. I can give you Lieutenant Shea's number if you want, but you'll just have to wait. While Jeff and his family were trying to make sense of everything that was happening, Peter Riley tossed and turned in the police station. His dreams were filled with his mother. He dreamed that Barbara Gibbons was still alive and that he never went to that meeting in the church basement. They were together in their cottage and everything was fine. At least, until someone burst in through the door. Peter jumped in shock. Before he could see who the person was, he woke up with a start. Peter didn't realize that the real nightmare was still unfolding. Earlier on in the interrogation, Peter had requested a polygraph test. Perhaps waiting for the most inconvenient time, an officer headed up to where the boy was trying to sleep and told him that it was time to move to the state police headquarters. Peter agreed without question. Once Peter arrived, he was given 20 minutes to himself while they prepared. Peter used his tiny window of downtime to smoke a cigarette. Then he headed into the station's bathroom to try and wash himself up. But as he stood in front of the sink, Peter was startled by his own reflection in the mirror. His eyes were bleary, his hair was a mess, 
and the color had drained almost completely from his face. As he splashed himself with water, Peter almost broke down in tears. The 18-year-old boy took a few deep breaths and pulled himself together. It would all be over soon. He was sure of it. After the 20 minutes were up, Peter was escorted up to an interrogation room. As he sat down, a sergeant informed Peter that they were about to administer a lie detector test, but he had no idea what was coming. Over the next eight hours, at least four different police officers hammered the teenager with questions and accusations, until finally Peter Riley broke down completely. He was ready to do whatever it took to get out of that interrogation room. So when the police stuck a written confession on the table in front of him, the exhausted and traumatized boy signed. There was no physical evidence that linked Peter to his mother's death. There was no motive. But that didn't seem to matter to the officers tasked with solving Barbara Gibbons' murder. They had their confession. And now, Peter Riley was headed to prison. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Barbara Gibbons. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found Guilty Until Proven Innocent by Donald S. Connery to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahue. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, Albert Park, Julian Smith, and Laura Faye Smith. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 